Today, Londoners have woken up to a very different city. Over half of America is on lockdown. As many of us must stay at home as possible. Hello, my name is Peter Tufano, and you're listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from the University of Oxford's Said Business School. We're bringing you the latest academic analysis and insights from business leaders as we build back the new normal. Coming up in this episode, we'll be asking, what might advertising look like in 10 years' time? Episode 7, The Future of Advertising. The advertising industry is in the midst of wide-ranging disruption. This was true before COVID-19, as the sector was grappling with rapid advances in technology, increased availability of customer data, calls for greater accountability, and new returns on advertising spending. So rather than focusing on the immediate impact of the pandemic, in this episode we're going to explore what the future holds in terms of new waves of disruption and positive change. What impact might issues such as sustainability, privacy, personalization, and machine learning have? Taking a deep dive into this and more are two industry leaders. Kate Scott Dawkins is the Senior Director of Thought Leadership and Innovation at Essence, a WPP agency. She joins us from San Francisco. And here in the UK, Steve Hatch is the Vice President for Northern Europe at Facebook. Chairing the discussion is Andrew Stephen, the L'Oreal Professor of Marketing and Associate Dean of Research here at Said Business School. Kate and team at Essence has just re, you know, quite recently released a really, I thought, fascinating report called Advertising in 2030, I'm thinking 10 years ahead, Expert Predictions on the Future of Advertising. Uh, and so Kate and, and her colleagues talked to industry leaders from some of the world's top agencies, as well as top brands like L'Oreal, uh, the tech giants like Google, Facebook, Twitter, Adobe, uh, and also academic experts uh, like yours truly from, from universities um, to, to sort of get our predictions on a whole host of different scenarios. So it's, it's fascinating reading, but, but what I think we should do to, to kick things off is just to ask you, Kate, to give us just a little bit of an overview of, of what went into this report and, and what you were finding uh, from these experts. Yeah, I think after speaking to all of our experts, we were really struck by where there was consensus and, and where there was more of a, a split opinion amongst them. So I would say um, the things that people agreed with on a whole were the future impact of the environment and considerations around environmental impact on purchase decisions. So 71% felt that would be likely by 2030. And also the increasing use of bots. So Definitely brand side, chat bots and service bots, but also on the consumer side um, with personal digital assistance or AI assistance, uh, about 66% felt that would be likely by 2030. Um, everyone agreed that we were also unlikely to wind up with a global and uniform approach to privacy and identity. We've seen GDPR and CCPA, but it, most people agreed that that would continue to be regionally split um, or split by country rather than anyone agreeing anytime soon. <laughs> um, we were just, people felt it was just as unlikely for there to be the end of advertising. It's, people agreed it would look different. Um, not everyone agreed on how it would look different, but I think they agreed it would remain not only an important source of 
revenue for independent publishing and, and journalism, but also a way to access information. Um, so that's you know likely to to still be around and important ten years out. Um, overall, we found panelists were clear there was likely to be only more data, and including sensitive data, genetic, medical, biometric, um, and where people were more split was in how that was going to be um, used in terms of making decisions and, and executed against. Some people felt that would continue to be the domain of humans and human workers. And some people felt, um, you know, in a line of our questioning that that would increasingly be automated. Um, and maybe even some of those jobs similar to customer service or, or retail um, would eventually even be replaced by, by AI and automation. And that was really interesting to us. So, Steve, what what what's your reaction to this? And also, what what you know? I'm, I'm sure from your views as well as Facebook's views, and and from what you're hearing from major advertisers and, and agency groups, what what do you think the future is going to look like for our industry? I mean, I, I first off, I really enjoyed reading um, Kate Lessons' report. I thought it was excellent, and there are you know 16 individual findings, all of which I found myself you know, absorbed with and and really interested and. And I, I, today's conversation about looking 10 years from now, but to some extent, it's hard to shape that conversation without the context of right now. And, and in particular, the, the COVID crisis, because this is clearly a, a, I mean, it's a combination of many things, but what it is for certain is a very rapid accelerator of some of the pre-existing trends um, that we were seeing both as, as people and citizens, but also working with clients. In fact, my, my colleague, that was a trick or not, but it was a pretty powerful way of starting a meeting, which uh, uh, just recently shared an image. He said, Steve, when was this photo taken? It was people in an office in Asia, people wearing masks. And I thought, I'm pretty much on top of this. November this year, December. And he said, look again, look at the computers and the computers in the office did look really quite old fashioned. At that point, he said, Steve, this picture was taken 17 years ago. And this was at the height of the SARS crisis and the people behind those masks are Jack Ma and the Alibaba team. And at that point, Alibaba was not the you know, nearly 600 billion capitalized company that it is now. It's actually was, was struggling a little bit, but they saw this insight that people are gonna be less likely to be wanting to go out to places to shop. And therefore they, you know, they kind of really moved their organization around. And, and, and in many ways, we're seeing a repeat of that pattern right now you know what are the every business in a short period of time has had to do two things you know one move to a complete remote working business and whether that's a you know very small business or a very large one and two really think about how to be digital first is to be consumer first right now and i think what we're trying to work through is how much how much of the things that we're seeing now are cyclical or how much are they systemic um and in many ways it's you know hope for cyclical in some respects, but plan for systemic. Uh, and I think many of the changes that we'll see, that we're seeing reflected in, in the report from Essence, I think maybe even be more accelerated than the 10 year horizon that Kate's captured this in so far. I mean, uh, I know we'll, we'll talk a lot about technology today, but I think certainly what's happened that every, almost every organization I talk to at the moment, many of them are feeling really energized. I mean, even the most challenged ones are feeling really energized because what they're saying is this is stripping away a lot of, bureaucracy, like the decision-making as, as rapidly accelerated. So that in a way the technology can exist, but if it doesn't meet the decision-making process in a, in a fast way, then it will perhaps not fulfill the potential. But I think that's definitely happening. 
So let, let's kind of take that a little bit further because I, I wanted to highlight a couple of the sort of themes when we think about the future of advertising, but maybe overlay it with this notion of innovative approaches. Um, the first one I thought we should talk about is personalization. Personalization is not a new thing in advertising, of course. Indeed, you know, platforms like Facebook kind of invented the idea when it comes to digital, but, you know, direct mail way back well and truly before, you know, any of us were around um, was really kind of the beginnings of that. But, you know, this notion of, of we're getting maybe to a point in the, in the near future where sort of every marketing communication can be, can be very, very micro-personalized. That seemed to be in your report, at least as I read it, to be something that there was fairly a, a lot of agreement on. I guess what's interesting, though, is what, what, what are we using to do that personalization that would be different to what we're doing at the moment uh, when we run a campaign, say, on Facebook, et cetera? Um, so what, what's going to be new about personalization that we're not seeing yet? Yeah. Um, I think for, for me, the first question always is personalization for the sake of, of what? So I think it can always just be um, to make media more efficient, but it has to be for the benefit of the user. Um, and they, they need to, to want it, you know, as much as you can determine that in your relationship with them. Um, now, assuming it's being done in an ethical and, and transparent way, uh, then I think there are some really hugely exciting avenues for personalization. Um, many of them achieved with maybe even greater levels of, of privacy than we see today um, in terms of, of how that works. So uh, one of the things we're seeing more of is contextual targeting, which you know may sound old, but I think we're doing it using AI to create innovations within that. So the, the ad copy and creative was incredibly personalized to exactly what you were reading at that moment but didn't actually require any user data, any personal data, you could do it without cookies. Um, and so I think that's hugely interesting, right? And is using AI to enable personalization like that, even in areas where say you don't have direct user level data. I think, you know, with the advent, again, speaking of, of technology and what it enables, the advent of edge computing, 5G, you know, personal digital assistance. It could be that we're in a place 10 years out where more data remains local on a, on a device and some advertisers are um, more blind to that. The personalization happens locally more to the consumer rather than happening in any ad tech or on the advertiser side, uh, except for those that have earned a relationship with consumers, right? Where they've opted in and they've agreed to share data for a value exchange, they get something out of it, they get, you know, more personalized products and services. And so I think that will only, the consumer relationship is only going to continue to get more and more important. So what, what's your take on, on this, Steve, in, in the sense of, I guess, you know, the effectiveness side of, of personalization? Because of course, it could be very efficient to reach, you know, the, the quote unquote, right people, right place, right time. But is it, do we need to always? Is it always going to be effective in achieving our marketing objectives? Yeah, I, if, if we look back to you know, how we've been talking about and thinking about that at, at Facebook for, for quite a while now, but particularly how that's evolved over the last couple of years. But if I go back quite a while, I think that what's often the, the two words that are missing often in the personalization conversation is personalization at scale. And I think it's often the kind of at scale thing that gets forgotten um, in this, you know, particularly well, it used to be that used to be the right conversation to have with larger organizations because, you know, when you've got hundreds of thousands or millions of customers around the world, you need a degree of scale to the impact that you're looking to create in order to move the dial. So you might, in many ways, a 
you know, a highly targeted small number of ultra loyal users aren't going to be that helpful in, in often delivering the business growth that most organizations um, need. The same is now true of all sizes of companies. And I think where particularly over the last couple of years, how this, how this has moved on considerably is where the machine learning has got to a level where the, the, your level of personalization is both creating kind of value for people and for businesses at the same time. And in many ways, some of the big value gains that we're seeing on, on the use of our platform is let the machines do the work that the machines are really good at and let people do the work that people are really good at, like coming up with fresh creative insights, creating you know, brilliant, compelling work that looks imaginative. But what we, we have this, um, one of the things we've been focusing in a lot with advertisers is to help them understand what's called the learning phase. And whilst people can often think about social media or digital media full stoppers, how do I really narrow down my audience to the tightest possible description of who they might be? That doesn't seem to work very well in delivering business outcomes. But if you give the widest possible audience in the initial phase of any campaign, the, the option to run. So, and then let the, in, in a way, let machine learning understand who's most likely to respond, who's most likely to, in, to, to welcome that message and who's most likely to convert on that message, that's where the real magic of personalization comes through. And, and, and often we find that, and, and generally speaking, like the first 200 conversions, uh, this is on performance marketing rather than brand, although the principles are the same, they're really not great. Like they actually look like the performance is really poor. So I'm doing that line because the costs look bad. But the minute the machine learning really gets to understand what works, you see this incredible kind of declining cost and increase in, um, in effectiveness. So I think personalization is really about enabling machine, the way we think about enabling machine learning to make sure that the people that really are going to respond to that message and will welcome that message at the right cost are able to see that and, and, and perhaps have a, a, a different way of thinking about targeting than, than I know I certainly grew up with. Uh, with thinking about kind of media and channels that that was my job to exactly identify this small cohort of people actually machines are really good at this and what 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 um, perhaps our best value is in that in the more strategic functions and the creative functions and understanding the ecosystems around that and the and, and understanding the complexity that's there moving on now to the consumer and user side of things especially when it comes to social media platforms and channels how is behavior likely to change in the near future? Steve Hatch from Facebook picks up the thought. In many ways, you know, a lot of the innovation doesn't necessarily come from the platform, but it comes from the people using the platform and finding ways to use it. And then you, and, and I, I, the, 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 the historic example that comes to mind back from 2004 was what was noticed is that people were, at the time, the only photo you could share on Facebook was a photo of your profile. So literally, and what people were doing is they were changing it, their profile photo to what they were doing the night before or what they're about to go and do. Um, so of course you kind of quickly go, oh, people really like to share photos of what they're doing right now on the platform. And you know, I mean, I mean Facebook is certainly not as back then, and, and actually maybe arguably yeah, was not the most sophisticated photo sharing platform. I mean Flickr. Has, was far more advanced then, uh, and, 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 and some professional there was, you know, still is true, but 
the fact that you're able to share that amongst your friends and family that becomes the um yeah that becomes the most appropriate and 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 desirable so often what it is is it looking at behaviors that people are people are doing or, or the way that they've discovered how to use a platform and then trying to make it easier for them to do that um so i'll give a small kind of commerce example at the moment we're seeing you know, we have kind of lots of live live commerce that takes place so people go on facebook live and they'll kind of talk about their kind of products well we don't we didn't create that we didn't facilitate uh, facilitate that. but if that's a way that we can help say a small business be more successful well what are the tools that we can build for that i mean you know, i remember um being in a, a, in a in a trip in uh in nigeria in this uh, a telephone market literally this whole place devoted to selling technology and talking to one of the small storeholders there and he was using instagram to celebrate the different new products that he had in. He was using Facebook to build his community and he was transacting over WhatsApp. Now we, we don't facilitate that. That's just somebody that's just somebody doing it. But those those are the indications of what you need to do in order to help people and businesses use a platforms more more effectively and more successfully. If if I was to point to a couple of things that I you know, looking forward, I think we will see live and usage of live in, in different formats becoming um, uh, uh, something we'll continue to do for quite some time to come. You know, particularly the kind of reinvention of what the, what the live events mean, either that's because of the socially distanced nature of it, but also people going, actually, okay, maybe this isn't as good as being exactly there, but it's pretty good if I can be in this environment with this, per this creator that I love, who's the other side of the planet, and now I'm able to make this connection together. So I think we can definitely see that. Um, I think the idea of just remote presence in general, so whether that's through video screens like this or other kind of hardware and, and technology, and that's both in a, at home and, and, a, and, and at home and, and a work from home level, that's, that, it's hard to not see how that is going to increase considerably over the, and, and be of increasing importance over the, over the next few years. And I think perhaps one that we haven't touched on kind of too much specifically going into advertising is we spend a lot of time talking about the technology, maybe not enough time talking about the creative and the content that goes, that goes into that. So I think one thing that was true and, and will continue to be true is that there will continue to be a premium on people that can create really good, interesting, um, compelling content that helps brands tell their stories and I think we might be seeing different ways of how that's evolving and shaping over the next couple of years. Hey, do you want to pick up on that thinking about the yeah the I think um, some of the things that we've seen again to your point come up in the the last few months that are really interesting and one of them is this idea of shared experiences and Steve started to touch on it but um, you know Fortnite concerts or you know virtual sports um, house party things like this where you can create that shared space amongst your friends you can't be with them in person um, that might continue to be more of the case for at least a while with less people fewer people traveling long distances um, so I think those scenarios where you are experiencing the same thing, whether it's a video game again, or a concert or sports at the same time with a smaller group of people. Um, and that interaction could continue to be quite prevalent for a while. I think, you know, there's opportunities for, for brands to be a part of that. I could see, you know, a, a retailer 
sponsoring <laughs> something like that, you know, to, to provide the food and snacks. Um, but I think that's certainly one area where we're, we're seeing it now and that might continue to be more prevalent is, is you know, we have less, potentially less linear TV viewing. Well, one of the things that made that great was that everyone was experiencing it at the same time. You could create smaller versions of that, right? So that at least you and your friends or you and a certain group of people are all watching content at the same time, even if it's on demand. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the thing that we'll have to keep an eye on, and this does relate to what we're all going through at the moment, is which sort of physical, let's call it physical world versus virtual world, physical world behaviors really come back just as they were versus which ones people are like, oh, actually the, the, the virtual world, the online social media kind of enabled um, version is, is, is either just as good, if not better. And, you know, I think, you know, we know from including our research that that is a good use of social media. It's good for well-being, good for mental health we've all been forced to use these platforms now for our meaningful social interactions, which is a very clinical term, um, because we have to. So maybe that actually is just more convenient and we like that and we blend that with the physical. So I think there's a lot of open questions at the moment, but I think it lies in thinking about which behaviors have kind of come into, uh, into the fore now in a virtual space that actually will stick. Uh, and then thinking about how marketers, advertisers and, and business more broadly can essentially leverage that to generate value for their customers. So I, I thought I'd just allow both of you to have uh, a couple of final thoughts, really. This has been quite a sort of a broad conversation. The future of advertising was a deliberately broad topic. Um, but, you know, Kate, perhaps we could start with you. Do you have any sort of two or three final thoughts and maybe, maybe some advice for uh, our practitioner audience uh, who's watching? Yeah. Um... I think uh, one is just be really thoughtful and proactive about um, data strategy within your, your corporation or your business and what types of data will be available in the future and, and future proofing for that. Um, the kind of transparency required um, and customer relationship that will allow you to have access to that or what you can do with aggregated, you know, non-personal contextual information. Um, if that's better aligned to the values of your company and your your customers, right? I think that's that's one. Um, another one, and and where I spend a lot of time just musing, is to start to think about the new forms of marketing that are going to be necessary when some of that purchase decision making gets um, maybe moved from the consumer to to bots. So when your refrigerator or your you know personal digital assistant is um, making replenishment. Uh, orders for your household and, and how that completely changes, right? What does that look like um, for marketing and how does it change the consumer journey, the consumer relationship? Um, that's something that, that we're looking at um, that I find hugely fascinating. Um, and I don't think it'll be as far away as maybe some people think. Thank you. And Steve, final yeah, thoughts? Right. Yeah, I just give some maybe practical tips as well and then, and then some, some more to long term. I mean, number one is if your campaign is in the learning phase, please don't touch it. Like let the machines do their work. Don't feel, because a minute, if you get to like, you know, I mentioned like you need to get to 200 conversions and then it really takes off. If you've got to 199 and then you change something, it goes back to zero again. So like I'm seeing small businesses around the world really adopt this type of technology and approach at an incredible rate. Their, their ability to experiment is really fast. Um, the second thing I'd say is like, think about the, think about the content, think about the creative. And I, I know it, 
might seem a very prosaic thing to say in a conversation about technology 10 years from now, but I'm still amazed at how people aren't making their creative for the context that it's in. So there's clear value to be created for, for people and for advertisers there. The third I would say is, and Kate's spoken to it a lot already, but you know, think about what your messaging strategy is. You know, what is that, what is your CRM approach? What is your loyalty program gonna look like over the next three years? And now what's the role of automation and messaging and that? And then just finally, I think this is a real moment for for leadership in the industry. So to be able to you know, to kind of gather under you know under your your umbrella here, Andrew, and to be able to talk about these issues, I don't think it's ever been more important than it is now. And honestly, if, if anybody hasn't read it, then just put some time aside, grab a coffee, and go and read Kate's report because it is really really stimulating. And I think it's great to be thinking about what's what, not only what's coming, but just how quickly it's coming to us as well. And therefore, we've got to really move as fast and use all of those insights to move as fast at the, the speed of our customers. Right? In the final part of this episode, we're going to take a little sideways step to look at what the future holds for marketing. We've heard a lot about the impact of technology going forward in advertising, but we've also been reminded of the crucial role that human creativity still has to play. So we're going to build on that with insights from a leader in the world of marketing. Mark Deswan Ahrens is the co-founder and global chief marketing officer of the Institute for Real Growth, the IRG is a nonprofit that helps CMOs and other senior leaders drive sustained, humanized growth. And, says Mark, empathy is key. Here he is in conversation with Professor Andrew Stephen of Side Business School. We pulled up the net about um, two months into the crisis and said, so what are the big implications that you're seeing? And some of them were about um, business resilience. The number one point is that a lot of companies were called uh, short because they didn't realize that they couldn't build their car if they didn't have that one part which there was no stock and no supply for the next two months. But the other very interesting high priority coming out of this that uh, was identified is an increase in empathy. A real understanding. I mean, the number of CEOs and CMOs that I've spoken to in the last uh, months that said, okay, I'll be really honest. I had a dinner two days ago. Somebody was telling me this. I was one of those leaders that believed that if I couldn't see them on the floor, I'd be worried if they were really working hard. That's out the window. Distance learning, distance working um, is here to stay clearly. And, and that opens the realm of possibilities of more innovation, more contribution, more diversity of thinking. And, um, and, but also just empathy, which as marketers, that's always what we've been trying to bring into the company. We're trying to get, you know, get the supply chain people, get the production people to understand what role this product or service fills in the life of our customers. And that's about understanding needs, having empathy, walking in our customers' shoes. So the fact that everybody has become more sensitized to that is a dramatic opportunity for marketing to then say, now that you feel it, let's talk about what we can do. If you step back a little bit, I mean, Friedman did uh, the world a huge disservice when he said all companies should do is drive profits for the shareholder and not break the law. Now, from that point, I see we, we've studied companies and we've done a lot of brand and company purpose work uh, with stories like Lord Leverhulme, 
at the, at the base of Unilever. The same is true for Nestle. The same is true for Procter & Gamble. The same is true for Sony, where two founders wrote a, their declaration and their mission on a piece of paper while the city was still smoldering around them at the end of World War II to say, we're going to show the world that Japanese technology can actually help humanity. And I make these points only to say that I don't really believe there's a lot of companies in the world that were created with the purpose of making a lot of money. There were founders that wanted to make a big difference. There were founders that wanted to impact the world around them. And what's happened in the history of most big companies is that at some point the founders left, the bean counters took over, no disrespect to the CFO, and somehow the goal came, became about um, you know, adding 20% to the bottom line or doubling our net for whatever. No one goes home to their, to their parents, to their wives, to their husbands, to their kids and says, we're going to double profit this year. You know, that's not a real thing. And so a lot of companies have lost their direction. And, um, and I think that actually um, getting back to understanding what the value is that we create to our communities, to the world at large, is just helping and, and, and is good business sense. So we don't actually feel like we're pushing water uphill. We think we're reconnecting companies yeah. to their original source of success. It's difficult to sell that story in many companies where now the bean counters are in charge. And so what it takes is a movement, a reconnection to our own roots and most companies' roots, but also to other people that have done this recently that are doing this and that have best practices on how do you overcome these objections? How do you win over? Uh, what are the arguments that the CFO buys into? What are the arguments that our board needs to hear to understand that this is not a flash in the pan, but a back to fundamentals? And we see our role together with all our partners like the Side Business School in building the confidence of these leaders to influence their companies and connecting them to the resources, the research, and the best practices that they can do it faster. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that because um, I think we're on the same page with this. But, but to me, it feels like the broader point is, is that this is a very human thing. Business is a human thing, right? And, and we're talking here really about what I know you've called humanized growth. Um, and that principle, I think, is very, very core to, to what IRG is doing. Indeed, what we're doing as well as a school in... in, in in our marketing work, but also across the board with, with responsible business initiatives and, and other sorts of things. So it really is about finding that common thread that actually gets the humans invested in the growth uh, aspirations of the, of the enterprise. And that could be a tiny little business with a single, you know, sole trader type business, or it could be you know, the largest company on the planet. But unless you can align those four stakeholder groups with some common mission and common purpose or purposes, I suppose, can be multi-purpose. Uh, it, it, it's, it's just not going to work, I think, in today's world. And to me, I feel like that's what, what we've been going through, you know, with COVID and, and, and with race and, and all of these sort of social and public health issues that are arising. It's bringing human back into the center of everything and making it very, very obvious. I was going to highlight one theme because I think people were living multiple personas and were one person at work and were um, quite a different person at home. What this Zoom period has just smashed us into is a realm where you know we might be talking and uh, my cat might just walk across my keyboard or my son or daughter might be tugging at my uh, elbow because they want another cookie. I had that happen last week. 
And um, I think that really pushes open the, uh, you know, market myopia is a term that doesn't exist for nothing. Uh, we all get stuck in our ivory, ivory towers mm -hmm. and that comes with seniority and it becomes, and it comes with time. And, um, and, and what this allows us to do is to bring that diversity back uh, from directions that we, we, we never would have thought of before. And I, I've already experienced Zoom calls where people uh, were throwing around ideas that no one before would have imagined. And, and hopefully with this, people, when they do re-engage and come back to the office, uh, or when we find a hybrid model, which is what I think we'll be, uh, we'll be, we'll be working towards, uh, suddenly the discussions are much richer in diversity. Uh, but again, I would say as a marketer, uh, this is a very special period for us, which, by the way, we need to yield that power very, very responsibly and carefully um, because people have now opened their hearts. Leaders have opened their hearts, have had to open their hearts, but I think have, have wanted to open their hearts. And so what they need now more than ever is uh, not just who's shouting loudest, but an informed window on the world, a decodification of the world around us, because it's not gonna happen overnight that companies will have that true representation. That's a must do. And that's the agenda uh, for any HR and any leader uh, for the next period, until you truly represent the audience you serve, uh, the world that you operate within, of course. Uh, but right now, companies need to understand how to navigate this new reality. And I think marketers and the inside departments that marketers often um, control are, are, are the window on the world. And that's where it all starts. This is the opportunity to put what we're all seeing happening today, tomorrow, into a broader context of where are we operating within? What's the ecosystem and why do we exist? And when we reconnect to that, everything else follows. And now people have opened not just their minds, but also their hearts to what we know actually moves people to action. It's their feelings, not their mind. And what we're now saying is marketing leaders, yes, you need to step up to be that business leader again, you need to be a true partner. But now there's an opportunity to be go beyond just stepping up and being equal because what the last months have shown us is that companies were caught um, basically with their pants down, focusing only on their shareholder benefit and not thinking enough about what they were doing for their colleagues, for their communities, mm -hmm. for their customers. And, and that is something that chief marketing officers are very good at, understanding the needs and creating value propositions for all stakeholders. So as companies scramble in that new reality to evolve from a shareholder primacy to a multi-stakeholder perspective, we actually see an opportunity for marketers to step up and not just be equal, but actually co-lead an organization into that new reality. My thanks to Mark Deswan Ahrens, Professor Andrew Stephen, Kate Scott Dawkins, and Steve Hatch. My name is Peter Tufano, and you've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from Oxford University's Side Business School. You'll find a link to Kate's report on advertising in 2030 in the show notes for this episode. And while you're there, take a moment to rate and review us, and subscribe if you haven't already. As always, for more about this series and all our past episodes, 17 and counting, visit OxfordAnswers.org. Thanks for listening.